Good evening. In 1798, a board game made it over to the U.S. It was called the New Game of Human Life. I read about this and I found a, a picture of the original board game and it looks true to that era, 1798. The game was made up of moves based on virtues and vices. The virtues sped you up, the vices would slow you down. Parents were encouraged to play the game with their children. And the game's creators spelled out the primary purpose of the game. And let me quote, life is a voyage that begins at birth and ends at death. God is at the helm and your reward lies beyond the grave. That was 1798. Now a man by the name of Milton Bradley took up the legacy of that game. And in 1860, he created a board game called the Checkered Game of Life. The good path included honesty and bravery. The slower path included idleness and disgrace. Industry and perseverance led the game players to win wealth and success. Bradley described it as, quote, a highly moral game that encourages children to lead exemplary lives, entertains both old and young with the spirit of friendly competition. I thought about board games and I thought evidently he never played them in my house. It was never friendly competition. A hundred years later, in 1960, the Milton Bradley Company released an anniversary edition, simply called The Game of Life, went on to sell 35 million copies. The game had been revised with players earning money to buy furniture and grow a family. Vices and virtues were non-existent. The winner of the game was the one at the day of reckoning that had the most stuff. You had the most money. But that's not all. The game was revised again in the 1990s as Milton Bradley designers tried to make the game less about money. This time the family is even out of favor with game, uh, the game players saving the endangered species or solving pollution problems. They were the ones rewarded with cash prizes and created the ultimate winner. And then in 2011, the game was revised yet again. This time, players had the ability to do whatever they wanted to and get rewarded for it. They could attend school, travel, start a family, whatever they liked. Values were up for grabs. You get as many points for donating a kidney to a stranger as you do for going scuba diving. There is no end, no last square on the game. You stop anytime you want to, subtle hint here. Because we're not going to mention the end of life. The description on the website says, Do whatever it takes to retire in style with the most wealth at the end of the game. What a change in perspective over 200 years reflected in the games we play. And these revisions each time really describe the cultural digression over this period of time. In the original game, the successful winner was the person who acquired the most virtues, avoided the most vices. And by the way, who determined those? The game said so. It was God Himself. God is at the helm of our journey. But then God was dismissed and virtues and vices became moral expressions of courage and industry over idleness and disgrace. Because whatever you did, you want to be the winner with the most stuff. And the day of reckoning was not a problem 
as long as you had the money. Whatever you do, remember you're doing it for retirement. Retirement. That became the goal. Just make sure you retire with as much as possible. And there was no mention of grave, no mention of life. On that day, gold will be nothing more than pavement. And the loss of moral values and courage to list moral vices has deeply impacted our culture. I read that article about the game of life, and it truly was, to me, impactful. How much we've changed as a people. And what we call and experience as entertainment. In the wake of the London riots just after 2012, one religious leader in Great Britain wrote about what was going on. And he had the courage to say that rioting was merely a symptom of moral disintegration. Wall Street Journal carried his statement. I'm going to read a couple of quotes from him. He said, there has been a tsunami of wishful thinking that has washed across the West. Wishful thinking that you can have sexual relations without the responsibility of marriage. Children without the responsibility of parenthood. Social order without the responsibility of citizenship. Liberty without the responsibility of citizenship. I'm sorry, morality and self-esteem without the responsibility of work. And then he said this, there are large parts of Britain, Europe, and even the U.S. where religion is a thing of the past and there is no counter voice to the culture of buy it, spend it, wear it, flaunt it because you're worth it. The message is that morality is passe, conscience is for wimps, and the single overriding command in life to follow is thou shalt not be found out. He went on to quote from Harvard, uh, Harvard historian Ferguson, who has a fascinating passage in his book, Civilization, where he asked whether the, the West can maintain its primacy on the world stage or if our citizen is in decline. We've all asked that same question lately, have we not? He quotes a member of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences tasked with finding out what has given the West its dominance. And here's what it said. At first we thought it was your weapons. Then we thought it was your democracy. Then we said it must be your capitalism. But for the last few decades, we have known that what gave the West its dominance, it was religion. Well, I think his observations are insightful, but I think they're also a bit short-sighted. The solution isn't religion. I think the world is as religious as ever. Religion is a big business. Remember when Paul arrived in Athens in Acts 17? He noted that that city was a religious city. So much so they had idols to every god, male and female. And they were so fearful of not getting them all, they even had one to the unknown god. You remember when Paul called them out on that and said, I want to tell you about the unknown god. The true eternal God. So Paul introduced them to the God of ages. In the book of Titus, that's where we're going to be tonight. Titus, the young protege of the Apostle Paul, is beginning his ministry on the island of Crete. He is surrounded by religion, all kinds of religion and all kinds of mythologies. He was submerged into a culture where lying and deceiving was the norm. We talked about that in a lesson a couple of weeks ago. There were no virtues to win. It would just slow you down. It was every man for himself. 
And the answer for sure to that culture was not just another religion. The answer was spiritual reformation. So what we've got in the book of Titus is Paul introducing himself, not just explaining himself to Titus, who the letter is written to, but also the people who would read his letter and telling them, and Paul is admitting he's a very passionate man. In fact, he said he's the kind of passions that changed his life. Look there in Titus chapter 1, verse 1. He opens the letter, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. If the Christian ever hopes to impact the world, then we've got to make sure that we have the right passions. And that's going to be our topic for tonight. But before we jump into that, I want to do a quick review of our lesson a couple of weeks ago. You may remember from verse 1 that we mentioned that Paul introduced himself with his obligation, that he was a slave of God. And the word he used there, and we studied this in detail, is doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S. And doulos means slave. But the way it's translated in our English versions, almost all of them, is not slave, but servant. And sometimes bondservant. I hope we never forget that the English language was softening that word. Maybe because a lot of them were translating it at a time when slavery was such a hot-button issue. And so, should they use that word? And what would people think when they used the word that Paul used? But the fact remains, there are plenty of Greek words for servant. And doulos is not one of them. And the difference between the slave and a servant in the first century was very clear. A servant is hired. A slave is owned. A slave had no rights or will of his own. His job was to fulfill the will of his master. And you study the life of Paul, and what you realize is, is he meant it. He lived it. When he said, I am a slave, that wasn't wishful thinking. That was a very truthful statement. And it wasn't just for Paul the Apostle. God has, God has not hired us either. We're not employees working for Him and just hoping our work conditions are satisfactory. We have no right to complain about overtime or to negotiate about better wages or our living conditions or, or, or better health reports or, or nicer treatment from those around us. We've not been hired. Paul would say, remember to the Corinthians, we've been purchased. We've been bought. We are slaves. And then he described himself as an apostle. That was his calling. That was his occupation. And he was, he was passionate about that. But tonight, I want us to see some other things that he's passionate about. It went straight from the verse we read a moment ago. Passionate about God's elect. About God's elect. Paul lived with passion. If you know anything about Paul, you know this about him. We don't have a hard time imagining Paul on the job. Whatever the job would be. Paul's going to do it with everything. That's the way Paul was wired. The very opposite of Paul's passion is a way of living of an employee. Think about this. An employee who's getting paid by the hour. They're not in a rush to get a job done. Because that means the job is over. So if the job takes an hour or the job takes a day, they don't really care. That employee is getting paid by the hour. She has no ownership of the task at hand. Maybe more concerned about herself, her comfort. He doesn't have any skin in the game. He can find himself in slow motion. But the Apostle Paul 
was not only owned by God, he owned his calling from God. He says, I am above all a slave. And look what he says there in the middle of verse 1, for the faith of God's elect. That word that's translated for means for the faith points to the, to the goal. And that's what the purpose here. He says, I'm a slave of God. I'm an apostle for this goal. This is my passion. For the faith of those that are called by God. Those who are chosen by God. And this theme is picked up again later in the chapter. Uh, verse 13, he talks about those who are going to be following all kinds of fables and other ways of thinking. They need to be sound in the faith. In chapter 2, verse 2, he tells the older men to be sound in the faith. To be anchored in what's true and right. So he's passionate about all of this. I was talking with some of our elders recently, and we asked the question, what do our elders expect of our members? And do we clearly articulate that? And especially to those who are are new joining our church. You know, congregations have different ways of letting a, a Christian join their church. My brother moved to Ohio one time with his job. And the congregation there in the Church of Christ wanted a letter from his home church stating that he was a member in good standing. Now, he's an engineer, moved all over the country. That was a first for him. So he was talking to me. He said, Randy, I've never heard of that. But you know what he did? He called his church where he moved from and said, I need a letter. Saying that I was a member in good standing. This week I read about D.L. Moody. You ever heard the name D.L. Moody? He's a famous evangelist in the 1800s. He established the Moody Bible Institute. Moody Press, you ever heard of that? Maybe have a book, Moody Press. He began a church, now it's called the Moody Church. But let me tell you about his life, how it started. When he was a young man, he applied for church membership there at home. In that day, this is the the mid-1800s, and they interviewed him. The deacons interviewed him to be a candidate. So after the interview with the deacons, he was declined for membership based on insufficient knowledge of the gospel. But they didn't just like kick him out and say no. They put him on a one-year course of study to teach him more. And then they interviewed him again. At the end of that second interview, they received him into membership. And the record shows, get this, with reservation. Isn't that amazing? I thought, how many churches even care today what people truly understand and believe? How passionate was Paul to establish the soundness of faith? He wanted to make sure this church on Crete, as it was getting started, that they had the right gospel, the truth. And he lived for the sake of the gospel. He was passionate about the body of Christ. Think of what we know about Paul. He was shipwrecked, nearly stoned to death, beaten, imprisoned actually became a, a martyr, is executed because of his passion for the Lord, of standing for the truth, to build up the faith of those who belonged. And he's, he noticed there the, the faith of God's elect. I'm reading from the NIV. Your Bible may say those chosen by God. And that may sound a little better because that phrase elect has given us heartburn for decades, has it not? What does that mean, God's elect? Well, it comes from the Greek word electos, where we get the word elect. So whatever translation you're reading from, when it says God's elect, that's actually the most accurate way to translate the word. But what does that mean exactly? 
Well, since salvation is described in terms of marriage, and we've been talking about that on Sunday mornings for, what, for quite some time, marriage between Christ and the church, Christ and His bride, think about salvation in those terms. First, there is, if you will, the sovereign proposal of God. He goes first. And then there's the willing acceptance of the sinner. How many of you married men proposed to your wife? Somewhere along the way, you asked the question, will you marry me? That's usually how it works most of the time. Guy comes to realization, this woman is a pretty fantastic woman. I'm not just falling in love with her, I can't live without her. She's infuriatingly complex. I'm just preaching the whole counsel of God right there. But I can't live without her. And so he gets to the point where he says, I want to marry her. And so he proposes marriage. She also comes to the same conclusion that she doesn't want to live without him. That he's the one for her. So she accepts. He proposes, she accepts. Now on the wedding day, if anybody were to ask the bride... Did you choose him? She would say, Oh yeah, sure I did. I chose him. And if you ask the groom, Did you choose her? Well, of course. I chose her to be my bride. But in the order of events, he proposed to her. And she accepted the proposal, which led to marriage. Election. Think about that. Is it God's initiation? of a proposal of marriage. And he goes first. It's actually, we might say, an arranged marriage. However, no one is going to heaven if they haven't responded and accepted that divine proposal. That's what it means to be God's elect. Now, you can stay up all night long trying to figure out the mystery of God's saving us and, and what that means and how that works. I would rather be like Paul and join with him and just deliver the terms. The good news that he wants to save all of us. Paul said in Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Unbelievers cannot ever hear about this wonderful proposal unless we share the good news with them. And let me add this. How do you know if you are one of God's elect? Well, the question is if you've accepted the proposal. That's how you know. If you said yes to Jesus, then you're bound to that gospel. And then you have that, whenever you read about election, or sometimes we'll call it the doctrine of election, then it's talking about you. It's a positive belief. And it's tended in a way to dazzle the bride, the church. We read about that and study that. No woman gets to the altar and says to her future husband, I just can't get out of my mind all those other women you could have chosen. And why did you choose me? That's not what she's thinking at that time. At this point, the wonder and amazement of the bride is, He chose me. He chose me. I may not really understand it, but isn't it amazing? I don't understand how Jesus Christ could die on the cross for 2,000 years ago, for the sin I'm going to commit tomorrow. I don't understand that. I can't fully wrap my brain around that. But isn't that amazing? I don't understand how God can take 
the dust that remains of my body in the grave and bring it back to life, reunite it with my spirit that is with him from the moment I die so that together I can be with him for all eternity. I don't understand how all of that works, but isn't it wonderful? Isn't that amazing? Paul effectively says, I am passionate about delivering the truth of the gospel to those who believe. There's nothing more thrilling to see someone hear that proposal and accept that proposal. To watch someone's eyes when they get it. When they understand the cross. How passionate are we to share the good news with others? I read about Howard Hendricks. Maybe you heard his name before if you've studied some commentaries. He taught at Dallas Theological Seminary for 50 years. He wrote about himself. Let me tell you about his background. He says, I'm sure I would have died and gone to hell and nobody would have particularly cared. I was born into a broken home. My parents having separated before I was born. The only time I saw them together was 18 years later when I was called to testify in divorce court. As a boy, I lived in the neighborhood in North Philadelphia in which they said no church should ever be planted. But God has a fantastic sense of humor, he writes, whenever anyone decides what can't be done. The Lord led a small group of Christians to band together, buy a little house, and start a church. One man in the church was named Walt. He had only a sixth grade education. One day, Walt told the uh, the Sunday school leader that he wanted to start a class for boys. So that's great, Walt, but we don't have an opening. But he insisted. So the man said, well, good, go out and get a class. Anybody you find is yours to teach. Walt came into my neighborhood, he writes. The first time we met, I was playing marbles out on the concrete sidewalk. Son, he said, how would you like to go to Sunday school? I wasn't interested. Anything with school in it had to be bad news. So he said, well, how about a game of marbles? Well, that was different. So we shot marbles, had a great time, though he whipped me in every single game. After that, I would have followed him anywhere. Walt ended up picking up 13 boys in the neighborhood for Sunday school class. All but four of us were from broken homes. Today, 11 of those 13 boys are serving in full-time Christian work. And then Hendricks concludes, So you see, my interest in teaching is much more than professional. It's intensely personal. And he uses the word passion. Because the only reason I have a ministry today is that God brought along my path a committed, passionate teacher. Paul was that kind of person. Paul was that kind of teacher. Paul was that kind of slave. Paul was that kind of apostle. He was committed. He was passionate. And then secondly tonight, I want us to see that Paul was passionate about God's truth. He was concerned about the gospel. He wanted to make sure people had heard the news. But he was concerned about the truth. Look at verse 1. He said, To further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. I thought about that. I thought the word truth, I'm not sure if it's disliked in today's culture or just abused. But we throw that word around. To some, the word conjures up the idea of imposing virtues on someone. The idea that there are vices that some things could actually be wrong. It suggests a dogma. No wonder people don't want to talk about truth. They'd rather take someone's truth and turn it into opinion. You have your truth, I have my truth, so let's just kind of 
keep our opinions to ourselves. But what does Paul mean when he says here that they come to a knowledge of the truth? If you're familiar with Paul's writings at all, it might even strike a chord of memory to you. It's not unusual for Paul to use the word knowledge and truth together. Knowledge and truth. Which can mean truth can be knowable. Truth is certain. It isn't a matter of opinion. It's truth. It's not a matter of opinion that a spoonful of arsenic will kill you. It's true. Truth can be definitive. The Bible is true. It's self-authenticating. Today we have the church. Prophecies have come true by the bucket load. All that we know about Jesus that came true. He was crucified, rose from the dead, and the course of history itself has been changed by His coming. The truth does not stop or cease being true just because you refuse it or you don't accept it. It will not become false if you ignore it. God lives whether or not you like it. Imagine traveling down a a road, say in the mountains, and there is a sign that's posted, sharp curve ahead, and then a speed limit sign that changes is 35 miles an hour. So you're driving, and you've got a decision to make. And actually, there maybe there's at least three choices you can make. Number one, you can obey and slow down, or you can ignore and keep going the same speed, or you could even defy it and maybe speed up. But no matter what you decide in response to that sign, the truth is a sharp curve is coming up. Now, you may not slow all the way down to 35. You may not slow down at all, or you may speed up. But it doesn't change the truth that that sharp curve is coming. And you're going to either suffer or be safe depending on how you respond to what is true. The truth doesn't change. The truth matters. Paul says, I want the church to get a grip on these truths, to grow in a precise understanding of these matters. You know, one of the problems with keeping children safe is when they don't get to experience or fully understand so many truths. When they experience it, when they fully understand it, you don't have to tell them because they already get it. When children don't understand how sharp a knife can be, then they're going to be careless with it. When children don't understand that a fire can burn and cause intense pain and suffering and scarring, then to them a fire is just something to play with. When children don't understand the law of gravity, they get into all sorts of trouble. But once they've experienced that, then they get it. Paul warns Titus the importance to teach the precision regarding the truth. The truth about eternal life. The truth about sin. The truth about relationships. The truth about virtues. And about vices. The truth that life isn't about getting all the stuff before you die. I want to end as we begin and just quote that original game of life. Life as we know it is a voyage that begins at birth and ends at death. God is at the helm and your reward lies beyond the grave.
Tonight, if we can pray for you in any way, or tonight, if you need baptism, we always have the water ready. Once you come, as we stand and sing to encourage you.